0: Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Manjula Das, and I'm back as your guest host. I am the membership and marketing coordinator at SBN, the Sustainable Business Network of Massachusetts. Since its founding over 30 years ago, SBN's mission has been to create local green and fair economies. Every year, we host an annual conference to promote this mission And on June 4th, with the help of the Common Good Collective, our 31st annual conference was held virtually. The goal of the conference was to inspire collaborative action, which will contribute to developing an economy that is local, green, and fair. This episode is an interview from the conference between Robin Young and Shirley Leung. Shirley Leung is a columnist and associate editor at the Boston Globe. She has written on everything from the intersection of business and politics, to gender and diversity issues in the workplace. Robin Young is an Emmy and Peabody Award winner and is the host of Here and Now. Robin begins by asking Shirley a question about one of her recent columns.
1: I want to start with one of your most recent columns, You looked at the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation's finding of equity and the lack of it in Boston. And they found that with just closing the racial wealth gap, not an easy thing, but by doing that, it could grow the Massachusetts economy by $25 billion over five years. Now, that's a big, broad, wonderful statement, but you break down also how that could be done. Can you talk a little bit about where some action might be needed? Because I know a lot of people are thinking, okay, I'm behind a lot of these things I've heard about, but how do we do that. So what are some of the things that could be done to close that gap?
2: This is one of my favorite topics, talking about equity and how do we achieve that in Boston and in the Commonwealth. I'm so glad we're talking about this right now. You know, the Mass Taxpayers Foundation, you know, they usually weigh in on the state budget or finances of the MBTA, and they use their research powers, I guess, to look at, you know, what would we We, we talk a lot about equity. So so what's at stake here? So I thought it was really important for them to say, this will add, if, if we work on equity, equity, we can add $25 billion to the state economy just in the the next five years and also add up to 100,000 jobs. And the focus of their report is, is really on education. If we can get Black and brown students to graduate at the same rate as white students at the college level and at the high school level, that will go a long way to close the racial wealth gap in Black and brown communities. Now, this report, they crunched the number. Numbers, but they didn't come up with solutions. That's part two. They want to galvanize organizations, businesses. Some of this work is already being done. But let's really focus on what can really move the needle. And, and it looks like education is is a big part of that equation. Because if you think about
1: education, like, you can get a job, right? You get a good I'm going to jump in because you crunched some of the numbers. Um, you mentioned college. If Black and Hispanic students in mass graduated from college at the same rate as their white peers... Mm-hmm. The increased economic activity from higher wages, more state and local tax collections from those jobs that those graduates then have reduced public assistance that those grads will now not be on could exceed $6 billion over the first five years and grow to $20 billion over a decade.
2: What I think the report does, I mean, of course, we've thought of education before, right? But I think what the report does is it allows us to focus this idea of closing the racial wealth gap can be sprawling, right? It, it's such a big topic that you don't even know where to start. That's what I love about this report. And I, and I, I think, you know, just like Shagoon was saying earlier, I mean, we're, we're just at the beginning of this journey <laughs> to, to, to really unpack how we deal with equity and how we create a system for everybody. So I, I don't think this is going to be solved in one year, two years. I think it'd be, it's going to be five years, maybe even a decade of, yeah. of, of
1: really hard work. Courtney points out in the chat that the salaries from those jobs earned by the Black and Brown graduates would probably be lower. So, as you said, there's a lot of work. There's a whole infrastructure that has to be dealt with. But I, I just want to give a couple more of these because they're amazing. Black and Brown Hispanic students in Massachusetts graduated from high school at the same rate as their peers if they did. And there was a commensurate decline in public assistance and incarceration rates. Again, joblessness leads to incarceration. It could result in nearly a billion in increased economic activity over five years. It's just, it's pretty amazing. But you also want to hold that thought because you also remind us it's that well-worn stat. The median net worth of the median Black household is $8. I mean, that's just... Heartbreaking. Uh, But as you write, lesser known is that Boston lags behind the median net worth of black households in L.A., Miami, Tulsa, Oklahoma and Washington, D.C. They average closer to five thousand dollars, but still just eight dollars in Boston. It's a number that's often cited. The Boston
2: Fed is actually redo, they're updating the study. So we'll see, I think the study was from 2015. And right now they're working on an update. So it'll be interesting to see if we've made any progress in five, six, seven years. It just really speaks to systemic racism, structural racism in Boston in in the way that we have funded or shaped education here, uh, and also the difficulty of minority entrepreneurs becoming suppliers, right? Whether it's to um, the city, the state, and to corporates. And there are a lot of companies working on this right now, but I think there's a realization this this is going to take some time. We need vigilance. I I think it's going to take years, at least five years, if not a decade of a lot of hard work.
1: Do you think, Shirley, that we're at a moment? I think we are in journalism. A lot of people know I'm, I'm so proud of my nephew, Cambridge in Latin, who uh, went to Northeastern. And he's now part of the new five-person White House correspondent team for The New York Times. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Well, well, I, I had nothing to do with it. He did it you know, at <laughs> Northeastern. And Walter Robinson, his mentor, and, and he worked his way from the Globe to the USA Today to the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times, he's 26 and he's black. And the first thing he called, he said to me, he said, do you think he'd been working on the border and doing great immigration reporting? And he said, do you think they're just doing this because I'm black? And I said, yes, because they recognize the value you bring. I mean, every newsroom, there might've been a time when there was racism behind hiring, just like we got to do this. Now it's people recognize a different point of view. I mean, when he was at the Wall Street Journal, There was a, I don't know if you remember when a young white kid from the South came up, armed to New York City and killed the first black person he saw. A homeless man. I don't know if you remember that story. Zolan immediately said, this is a white supremacist who came to kill a black person. His editors at the Wall Street Journal said, no, this is a troubled kid. Well, he was right. And I reminded him of that and said, "You know, no, no, they want your point of view. They want what you bring. Do you think there is a sense of that in the corporate culture, that there's a need for different voices now? Absolutely. There has been an effort before Floyd, there has
2: been an effort to bring diversity in all levels of corporate America. But I think there is a renewed focus now. and I think I think companies are really serious now and they're really thinking about how can we diversify the ranks? I mean, think about the pandemic. I look at what's happening in Boston and Massachusetts, even at the, the Globe. We know it's been very hard to attract black reporters or black journals or black employees, black executives to Boston because of our reputation, right? But the pandemic and this new remote working culture has allowed companies to diversify the workforce. Maybe you don't have to relocate to Boston or Massachusetts. You come in once a week or or you come in once a month, and that allows us to broaden the perspectives not only at the Globe, but at other companies as well. And so I think that's going to be great for companies in Massachusetts because we've had a really hard time attracting employees of color, especially Black and Hispanic employees.
1: There's another part of this article. I mean, I'm sure people have a lot of questions and we maybe can uh, raise some before we're finished about just how you get from, we need to have this many, you know, over 10,000 more college degrees in the Black and Brown community to do this to the economy, how you get those degrees, you know, how you help people pay for them, how, you know, but there's another thing you noted, challenges of the Asian American community should not be ignored. Asian-Americans are the fastest growing racial group in greater Boston. They account for 8.9% of the population, about the same size as the black population in greater Boston, just about. But the poverty rate among Asian-Americans in Boston is 29%. That's higher than African-American households, which we just heard the problems there. Three times higher poverty than white households. I don't think I hear about that a lot.
2: No. And it's part of the Asian-American experience, our narrative. It's its hard to grasp because within those numbers, there's also you see there's great disparity in the Asian-American community. You know, I actually just finished a column going over very similar stats on this. On on one end, you have Indian Americans who are highly educated and their medium household income in Massachusetts is is nearly one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. And then at the low end, you have families from Nepal who are probably refugees, speak very little English and their medium household income is $60,000. The medium overall in Massachusetts is about, um, or greater Boston is about $80,000, $85,000. So you have this incredible range of experiences. And I think it's very hard for Americans to understand that Asian Americans, we don't fit one box in Asian Americans. You have people who are incredibly poor, and then you have people who are highly educated and, and well-off. And, and unfortunately, the story that gets told by the media and by policymakers is that we're the model minority, right? You only hear about the, the doctors and the software engineers who are well off. You don't hear about the people who are living at the poverty level. You know, I was struck by how there are a lot of immigrants still coming from Asia here. When I think of immigrants, I think of just Hispanics, right? La- the Latino community, but actually the Asian American community. There's there's quite a few people still coming over um, at a really fast rate. And a lot of them don't speak English. A lot of them have low-paying jobs. They're not, again, not all doctors and software engineers. And it's the job of the media in part to to really tell a more sophisticated story about the Asian Americans. And then that's what I've been trying to do this year with the rise in anti-Asian hate. And even in that story from the foundation, what was really extraordinary to me was that, you know, in a 29 page report talking about closing the racial wealth gap in Massachusetts, they didn't talk about the Asians. They mm-hmm. only looked at black and Hispanics. And I actually talked to the president of the foundation about that. And part of it is that the, the data collection is not very good with Asian-Americans. So it's very hard to figure out what is going on. And, and that, that's why there is a push to what they call disaggregate the data, which is instead of lumping Asians all into one category, let's do what the census does is you got to separate the Chinese from the Vietnamese, from the Korean, the Japanese, because they all have very different experiences. But anyways, I'm sorry to get into, nerdy
1: data. (laughs) I mean, it's important to hear about. The other thing I I wanted to ask you about that was in the report, as you pointed out, the Asian stats, which are stunning, were not. But uh, the report did write about how uh, an incredibly high rate of Black and Latino people still don't have health insurance in Massachusetts. This is going to absolutely add to inequity. This is the first state to mandate coverage. How is that?
2: I was shocked by that number, and um, I was had to read that section twice.
1: It's 11.4% of Black Bostonians, 24.4% of Latinos uninsured. And, and, the, and what's extraordinary
2: is that it hasn't moved since we had mandated insurance. And so we really need to look into why is this happening? And, you know, the Globe Spotlight, we did a series oh. last year on mortality rates in Boston, here in greater Boston, we have the best, you know, academic medical centers, right? World-class hospitals, right? But your lifespan, right? If you are living in Roxbury, and Mattapan, um, you're going to die sooner than someone living in the back bay. And it comes down to access to affordable health care. And that is something that, you know, the hospitals um, and, and health care leaders really need to work on. I mean, I remember interviewing um, a board member of um, the foundation, and he said that that's one of his top priorities. He would like to see Boston and Massachusetts lead on closing the gap in healthcare.
1: I just want to ask you in a couple minutes that we have to speak to small local business owners, as we have gathered here, you, you wrote about the PPP and uh, the, the problems with it. What would you, what's on your radar that you want small local, you know, people interested in sustainability and equity? What do you think is an important issue?
2: This has been mentioned earlier in the conference. I mean, I invite all the entrepreneurs of color on this conference to tell your story and um, be out there and talk about your experiences. You know, reach out to me. I think it's too easy for all of us to say, oh, the pandemic is over. Everything is going to go back to normal now, right? But a lot of um, small businesses, especially minority entrepreneurs, they they suffered a great deal, you know. They and 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 it's going to take more grants. Loans are found not to be as effective, but it's going to take more grants and more um, help to to help small businesses of color recover. So tell your story. I mean, to the media, and and I, I do sense that from the very beginning, you know, last spring when when the, the first PPP uh, batch was a disaster, you know, right? The the, the biggest companies got got the money got ahead of the line. And then towards the end, the SBA fixed that so that they allowed um, smaller companies um, and at the head of the line. But what needs to happen is Beacon Hill needs to, I mean, the state got all this money. The state is sitting on billions of stimulus money and they need to figure out what to do. And a lot of money should go to small businesses because you're the ones that create jobs in your community. I'd like to see more money Continue to go to small businesses, not think of this as a, you know, we already gave money to uh, small businesses and, and it's a one time thing. There should, I mean, the pandemic was what, 14, 15 months of abnormality?
1: Small businesses should get that same amount of attention. Michelle Ferguson just wrote uh, read a report yesterday 49% of Black businesses closed or plan to close in the next six months. In the couple minutes we have, does anyone have a question for Shirley? You can. Oh, there's one. Courtney.
3: Go for it. Hello. This okay, so this is a major treat. I am I am a journalist by trade. So I am oh. fangirling out from the both of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to ask. From the perspective of journalism and media, um, Shirley, you did say this, but I'd love for you to elaborate the importance of our work in bringing in important context to our pieces when we're dealing with issues affecting the Black community and AAPI community, especially in regards to, which I've seen recently with the resurgence of violence that's impacting the Asian American communities, that the media has been pitting our communities against each other when really there needs to be a highlight on the ways that in the past we've worked together. And so I would love for you to kind of illuminate that, especially in regards to um, business. Can you elaborate on, on that important part of our work?
2: You know, I I actually get a lot of readers I, I who write in and and who who try to um, stir the pot. Let's let's say and often they're white. I can tell they're probably white readers saying like you you know you you know they want to blame they want to pit the two communities against each other. But I know that the Asian community has been there for the Black community. The Black community has has been with the Asian community. Um, we are only um, stronger. We're stronger to working together. As an Asian American, when I look at, when I think about policymakers and I think about, you know, companies looking at programs to advance, uh, I guess, people of color, all I'm saying is that I think they should they should look at the whole, they look, should look at everyone and, and don't pit people against each other. And I do think it's, I, I do think the last year has really changed the dynamic of hiring in corporate America. I mean, we have a long way to go, but I, I do think that there is less of that pitting less of the there's only one pie and we got to slice oh, it up right. and you know I think there is an effort to create multiple pies right <laughs> as they say so um I, I do think that we as a society are are looking towards that now or looking to be truly inclusive not just looking at the black community or the Hispanic community I do feel like right. they're looking at everyone together now
1: I want to thank you, uh, Shirley Liango, the Boston Globe. I, what I clearly heard you say, Shirley, is that small business owners should write you directly and tell you their stories. <laughs> yes. S-L-E-U-N-G at globe.com. We are, all, and I was to
2: say, we, one more thing I just want to say, you know, in, in the year after Floyd, we also, um, and, and NPR has been doing this for years, is that we do a, a source audit. I mean, we, we've started to audit Um, our stories, uh, to look at the diversity uh, of the sources, the diversity of our photos. Right now, when I do stories now, I make sure it's not all men. It's not all white people quoted. I go out of my way to make sure that I have women and uh, people of color represented Um, in my stories and in in photos of the globe. So this is this is a good time
1: to to reach out and tell your story. And I I see Juliana has popped up. Do we have time for one last quick question? Yeah, thank you so much. This is incredible. As I listened to you, Shirley, I I remember a question that I was asked yesterday in a forum with people from around the world. A woman from Russia asked me if the American dream was still alive, if it's real, if it does exist. I had a very convoluted answer because it's 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 kind of hard, but I would love to hear your thoughts based on your experience and the research that you've done.
2: I think about that too. I think about when my parents, uh, I'm first generation Chinese, you know, my parents moved here in 1970 from Taiwan and Hong Kong. Their families had fled, you know, the communists in 1949. And so I often think about they were escaping something else from Asia and, and they wanted to start a new life in America. I do wonder, being 2021, would my parents come from Asia? I don't think it's an it would it's an open and shut case. I think back then, 1970, yes, we're going to come to America and give it a shot. I think there's a lot of hesitation now. And, and that makes me really sad because what makes America so great is all these immigrants, right? Immigrants and, and this melting pot. And I, I think that is in danger right now, given what's going on in America. I live in fear for the first time in my life as an Asian American, you know, I don't feel safe anymore. And that's never happened to me. And and I don't think any American should live in fear. Um, And so we have a lot of work to do right now. I totally understand why you gave a convoluted answer. It's very, probably very similar to mine. I mean, I want the American dream to be alive and well, but it's it's not. And, And all of us have a lot of work.
0: Thanks for listening. You can find Robin and Shirley's bios and more information about the Sustainable Business Network of Massachusetts and the Common Good Collective in the show notes. This episode has been guest hosted by me, Manjulika Das, and produced by Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.